Uh, I need to see your hand if you are in need of a vacation right now. If you feel you're in need of a vacation, raise those hands up. Okay, let me dispel any rumors. There's no giveaways this morning, okay? Not in the form of vacation packages. Uh, but for all those who raise their hand and for everyone else, let's play a little game for a second. Let's say that you were given $5,000 with, with only one rule. The rule was you had to spend it on a vacation somewhere, okay? What would you do and where would you go? Okay, real question. I want a few real answers, okay? $5,000, where would you go? What would you do if you got the choice to go on vacation? By the way, you don't need a driver's license to play this game. So kids, I want to hear your answers as well, all right? So let me see some hands. What do you got? Haley, what do you got in the back? Hawaii on a cruise. Dad, do we have an amen on that? He's all, not if it's on my dime. Tegan, where would you go? Hawaii. All right, you guys going to enjoy dinner together. Jake. Awesome. Yeah, and gas prices, you could get at least to Arizona. That'd be good. Right here in the blue. Yeah. New Mexico. And what would you do in New Mexico? Santa Fe, New Mexico. Awesome. And you'll figure the rest out once you get there. Okay, one more. Disney World. Disney World. All right. Fun to play that, isn't it? Cassie, we'll get yours at home. Um, China, okay. I, I could get you there. Uh, maybe a bowl of noodles. That's all that will buy you. Um, so here's the follow-up question to, to where you would go is this. Why would you go there? Okay. Now, we're not going to take hands on that one, but but probably... The reason that you would go there is you think that would be the best place to go with your $5,000. Make sense, right? You think that would make you the happiest. You think that would be the most memorable. Um, you're, you're, you're talking about priorities as you think about that. And some of you would go by faith. Okay, What I mean by faith is this. Uh, you may have never been to Santa Fe, New Mexico. You may have never been on a Winnebago around the country. But you may have looked at a brochure, you may have heard testimony from someone else and thought, gee, that sounds really great. I've never done something like that before, but I'm going to go do that. And so by faith, you go and you take your vacation. Others of you would say, no, 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 I would never waste my $5,000 doing it on my faith. I would want to lean on past experience. And so you would say this, you know what, I went to Hawaii on a cruise in 1994. I'm sure it's still great to go on a cruise in Hawaii. We're going to go do that again because I've been there before. And people would think through this differently, even just sitting right next to you, probably in the same family. What we're talking about in this whole series is priorities. And just playing the $5,000 vacation game um, begins to show you that, that you are making these kinds of choices and decisions all the time. Now, um, greater than is about choices. With so many options, so many opinions, how do you know what is best? Now, as we sit in church this morning, uh, what if the stakes aren't wasting $5,000 on potentially a bad vacation or maybe a great vacation, but what if instead it's your very life that we're talking about? And not just your life, but life for eternity that we're talking about. What is best? What is most in the decisions that we make? For Christians, the answer can be boiled down to this. We follow the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said this, Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus said it's not about what I want, it's all about what God wants. So in this series, we've been 
we've been, we're, we're starting to lean into this question of priorities and choices and, and who gets to dictate that? Are, are we going off the testimony of others? Are we, are we looking uh, to our own past experience? Uh, last week, if you were here, you saw just the, the power in priorities. If you know with certainty what mission accomplished looks like, then, then it actually frees you from the crush of all the different options and choices and decisions that have to be made. If you know with certainty that those tracks have to line up, then, then, that, then that frees you from a lot of decisions that have to be made. We looked at this story Jesus told about the four soils, how the seed of God's word is planted in different kinds of soil. And I think for us in this room, for the most part, we would fit under that soil um, that, that has the word of God uh, take root and start to sprout up. It begins to get choked out by thorns called pleasures of this world, cares of this world. Okay, um, So if you read the four soils, that's the soil that, that we're probably most in danger of falling into. Today what we're going to look at, uh, at is, is this. Before getting to some of the individual things of our lives, we're going to look at our lives collectively as a church. Now, God saves us individually. You don't get saved by coming to church or by attending church or by placing your role on membership. But although God saves us individually, he calls us into a spiritual family. So before we get into individual lives, we're going to look at at us collectively as a church. So we're asking this question. What is important for a church? What is most important for a church? Maybe you can think of it this way. Of all the things that a church could do, what must a church do? Right? Here's a question for you that you can just start to kind of mull on. Why did you first start coming here? Why do you attend? Some of you, this may be your first or second or third week. Welcome. But for many of you, I see you week after week. Think back to why you first started attending here. Here's a thought. What is maybe that one or two things that if NBC stopped doing, you would stop coming? Or what are some of those things that if we started doing, you would say, nope, I am not going to be involved in that. I will not be coming to this church anymore. All of a sudden, we're starting to get into priorities and what those those most important things are. Now, here's a follow-up question to all of that, if you can keep up with all these questions. Is that biblically informed or is that culturally informed? Or is that personal preference informed? Where are you getting these strong uh, uh, feelings and ideas about what's most important for a church? Now, churches start up for all kinds of different reasons. And most churches, Christian churches that I know of, start something like this. Uh, I've met and I love to talk to church planners. It's just kind of a fun group of people for me to hang around. And I always love to ask them, why are you starting a church? We've got tons and tons of churches in this area. And they'll usually start to tell me. And those churches uh, that start up, and they're starting up all the time, they start out something like this. And the reason that they start out this way is very clear. It's because Jesus said some words to his followers, uh, and they are trying to be faithful to the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus was, was others-focused. It was outward-focused. Now, if you lived in the time of the disciples, the first disciples when Jesus walked the earth, if you lived during that time and you were a betting person, you would not have bet on this little movement 
sustaining for very long after their leader died. Okay? If you just get the whole context, you would have thought, nope, this thing's going to fold. It didn't make much of a, much of a splash then. It started very small. They had very little power or influence. And if you read the people who were to carry on this movement, it's a bit of a train wreck, right? So if you were there, you would have seen that. Uh, for sure, you would not have predicted that this group would have made any kind of dent in society at large. And yet, here we sit this morning, talking about Jesus, talking about them, involved in this very movement that Jesus started. Now, what did the disciples do after their leader died and then rose again and then left them? Remember what they did? They got beat up. They got persecuted. That's what started to happen to the church. And here's what's fascinating about the early church, is that as they were beat up and persecuted, they began to spread away from their homeland and go into all these different places. And you know what they took all of that to mean? They took all of that to mean, huh, this must be part of the assignment. I guess we'll preach the good news where we have fled to as well. I guess God must see it in his sovereign design that that we're going to be persecuted. Oh yeah, come to think of it, Jesus warned us about some of this. So after getting beat up, They had to flee, and they went into all different parts of the world, and they began to preach the good news. Now, they did this because they heard very clearly from their teacher a couple of things. They knew who they were, and they knew exactly what the assignment was. And Rob just touched on it with the song that they sang, and this gave them their focus. If you're taking notes, there's just a couple things to jot down this morning. Identity and mission matter for every church. Who are we? Who are we as a church? Well, we're a community of people. And unlike the word community that you might think of, like a neighborhood or whatever else, it's not that we're a community because we were forced to live in the same cul-de-sac and be neighbors and kind of try to, to put something together. We're a community that's really a family, and it's a family by faith. That's our, that's our bond. We are not a building as a church. We are not a denomination. We're not defined by affiliation and by region. Those are not the things that draw up and make a church. We are a living organism, not an organization. The kinds of metaphors that the Bible teaches us about the church when talking about us collectively as a, as a group of people is terms like this. We're a body. We are a bride. We're a family. Uh, When it does call the church a building, here's what's curious. It calls us a building at one point, but but it says that you, individual people, individual Christians that make up this building, you're living stones, and we're built on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. So even when it does refer to church as a building, it's talking about something totally different than wood and drywall and nails and paint. There's a lot of things we could say to this, but let me, let me point out one more. It's a, it's a family that's global and eternal. The neighborhood of God includes our neighborhood and all peoples all over the earth. That's God's neighborhood. Now, 
this, just this little sketch of the church, is not what the vast majority of people think of when they think of church. They just don't. They're informed by other things. They think about other things. Uh, this last Wednesday, I decided to Google best churches. And you could do this sometime this week and see what comes up. But when you Google best churches, here are the top two hits. Top 100 uh, largest churches. That was the first hit. Top 100 fastest growing churches. That was the second hit. Largest and fastest growing. Now the listings go on. As you start to dig a little bit, you get the most beautiful churches worldwide, and you could do a slideshow of all kinds of interesting churches. Do you see how it goes right to, to building and location? Uh, it goes on to talk about the most famous churches, sometimes famous for good things, sometimes famous for bad things. It goes on to talk about the most influential things uh, of, of different churches. Now, here's what's shocking. We made this map. Okay? If you zoom in, Neighborhood Bible Church is on the best churches. So I'm going to start introducing myself to people as um, I'm one of the pastors at, at, at evidently one of the best churches in the Silicon Valley. Now, you have to know right where to hover your mouse to, to be able to see this uh, fact. And I'm pretty sure every church in Silicon Valley is on this map. So I don't think it's really that big of a deal. When you look at largest... Fastest growing, most beautiful, most famous, most influential. All, all of those things, uh, none of those things, I would say, um, are wrong in and of themselves. But none of those things made the list for Jesus about what's most important for a church. The priorities that Jesus left for the church are not architectural in nature, in fact, worldly success, things like power, influence, growth rate, they didn't make the list either. For the vast majority of churches in America and, and the world, um, it may not be identity that trips them up. Okay? Most churches in America, they are not making a giant splash in the Twitterverse every time something goes on with them. They're not making the top 100 list of anything. Okay? No one even really knows about them. So maybe they're not getting skewed into thinking they're a mega corporation or something else, um, but it doesn't mean they're out of danger. For many, it's not the identity that goes away, but the assignment that goes south. Mission accomplished turns into something different. It turns into mission creep. Okay? Now, no one likes a creep, right? We want creeps to go away. But mission creep in the church is really common. What happens is this. Churches move from becoming, uh, they, they move toward, I should say, uh, being safe instead of dangerous. They become uh, nice instead of holy. They become cautious instead of bold. And it completes the picture this way. Instead of being self-sacrificing, they become self-serving. And all of a sudden, the priorities of the church that our Lord and Savior left for us, everything turns inward like this. When the mission is lost, priorities change. I'll tell you what becomes tops. Protection, comfort, guarding the familiar. Those are the things that really ring true and become things to talk about and have meetings about and 
pray about and focus on. No wonder so many people in this world are convinced that church is boring. I believe if church is being done right, it should be anything but boring. Now, I might be boring sometimes. Some of the songs we do in here might be boring sometimes. The, the, the bulletin might get boring to you. But church, us being a collected group of followers of Jesus, should never be boring. But boredom leads to being passive and disheartened and lonely in the church. An epidemic, I would say. That leads to being testy and cranky and then passionate about all the wrong kinds of things. One of my favorite authors is a pastor in Canada named Mark Buchanan. And he says this, that churches are gorging themselves on feeling good and allergic to self-denial. Do you see that if we're gorging ourselves on feeling good and allergic to self-denial, our church will begin to look something totally different than what Jesus called us to be? Now, here's what's fantastic. Remembering our priorities can change all of that. And just realigning our priorities can change all of that. Open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We looked for a moment about what a church is, who we are. Now, what is a church to do? The church is shaped by two great forces, a great mission and a great love. In Matthew 28, if you've been coming here for long, you will have heard this before. We come back to it often. It's often called the Great Commission. It's our assignment as a collected body of believers. And it says this, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. Go, because they're not just going to rush in here. Don't sit and wait. Go and make disciples. Everything else that follows out of that fundamental go and make disciples are just qualifiers, supporting statements to that. All nations gives us the scope of our mission, baptizing and teaching them to observe. By the way, notice it's not just teaching. It's not just regurgitating the truths and, and, and making sure the information gets out. Teaching them to observe talks about obedience. That means life on life. That means follow-up. That means walking with someone to make sure that they get it, that the, that the lifestyle is transferred, not just the ideas are communicated. It's not just a great mission, but also a great love. Flip over to the left a couple of chapters to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 36, Jesus says this when asked about the greatest commandment. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. A great mission and a great love. 
Love God. Love family. Love everyone. This love would come to mark the church of Jesus Christ as distinct from all other groups. Now, history is cluttered with stories of the church failing at this and of people commending the incredible love of these people who call themselves Christians for each other, for the forgotten, and even for their enemies. Now, we are in a society that's fairly protected by an epidemic. But an epidemic is when a disease breaks out and it affects a lot of the population. And it becomes a massive concern for everyone involved because of the contagious disease. In 260 AD, there was one such epidemic. And Dioscius wrote a tribute to the heroic nursing effects of local Christians during the great epidemic of that time. Look at the contrast between Christians and others. He wrote this, Most of our brother Christians show unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathen, those without God, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away, and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spreading contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now, this guy writing this at the time was a Christian leader. So it might be fair to say, well, he was just biased toward what he saw in Christians. What's most compelling is this. If you were to go research this, you would see story after story of those who are enemies of the cross writing down and observing the behavior of this thing called the church, these people called the church. Julian lived around 362 A.D. He complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia, pagan high priest, that pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians. Julian said that recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. He went on to write, I think that when the poor happened to be be neglected and overlooked by the priest, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They supported not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from from us. Now, unlike what he may have thought, this wasn't to put on. This wasn't uh, a quick growth strategy. Let's go live amongst the diseased and give ourselves to the poor. You know what they were doing? They were just following the model and following the orders of their Lord Jesus Christ. Go and give your life away 
so that you can find it. The assignment is great. The love that we're called to is great. And I use that word great very carefully. It's great because it's God-sized. You will not love the diseased and the poor and the forgotten and your enemies without God uh, in your life. Now I want to just close our time off by looking at us specifically. How does this flesh out in our setting, in our story? How are we to be a church? If you were to go start a church and you wanted to use the New Testament as your guide, you know what you would discover? You would discover a ton of freedom. You might look around you and see all kinds of different churches doing all kinds of different things, and you would see a bunch of freedom. Absent from the New Testament are detailed instructions uh, on many, many things. Now, you might be concerned, but people will use their freedom for selfishness. If you don't give them parameters, they'll use it for selfishness. You know what much of the New Testament letters are about? It's addressing those very things. We just worked our way through one in Galatians, right? Don't use your freedom for selfish gain. Use it for the sake of the mission. So when thinking about the church, it's a little bit like, uh, instead of dot to dot or color by numbers, it's a little bit like a fence uh, placed around a playground and a field. There are a couple of very, very clear parameters that say this far and no more, and then a whole lot of room to, to move and be and have our being within that safety zone. I want everyone to do something for a second. I want you to take your arms, and I want you to get them. You can go out this way if there's room, or you can go up this way if there's room. I want you to get them as big as you can. Imagine you're hugging the biggest possible tree, and, and, and you're trying to, let me see this, okay? Okay, now I'm not going to go, some of you just have long arms, so it looks like you're, you're doing bigger than others. Uh, uh, okay, let me see here. Yeah, okay. Abby, you might win. You're, you're really, she's got every finger, every ounce trying to get that on. Okay, go ahead, and, go ahead and put your arms down. Shake them out for a second. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hands and I want you to do this. I want you to form a circle like this, okay? Look at that circle for me. Just look at your own circle. The first circle that you formed represents your circle of care. You care about a lot of things. And when new things come in, you go, that's really important. Someone should do something about that. But here's the reality. Your circle of care is always larger than your circle of influence. Do you know how much you can handle? You can handle what your hands form a circle around. This is how much you can handle. You know how much churches can handle? Right here. Each individual church can handle this. Ben, hold up your hands really big. Now listen, look, look at those hands. Ben represents the megachurch. Right? So, so there are some really, really big churches out there. You hold up your, your hands like this. Okay? Do you know that most churches in the world are about the size of Cassie's hands right there? Okay? So as a church, of all the things that we could do, of all the things that matter, what should we do? What should we focus on? We're going to get into this some more as an individual, but I overheard a conversation this week of someone who was, who was participating, just kind of a toe-dip participation in a really great ministry, and she asked this question. 
Is that something I should take on also? Now, I happen to know this person. This person's deeply involved in a lot of things. She's handling a lot of things, and her influence is really great in a lot of lives. But, but there becomes the question of priority, of greater than. God, we can't possibly do all this. We will burn out as a church, we'll frustrate each other, and we won't live uh, in joyful uh, community. Uh, but we can handle this, and we should be doing this. What do those look like? The characteristic of NBC is this. We started uh, with a couple of very focused, clear things that we wanted to do really, really well. Because as we saw it, we saw from the New Testament that these things had to take place. This is what a New Testament church was. So the general tone of NBC for the last seven years has been that there isn't a whole bunch of stuff going on. There aren't ministries to every age group under the sun. There are many people who have come asking for some ministries, and I've just said, I care about that, but we're not doing that. I happen to know of a church the size of Ben's hands that are doing that really, really well. Can I introduce you to the pastor over there? Because I'd love for you to be cared for, but that's not us. One of the things that God has really blessed our church with is this. By not over-programming everything, by not having the leadership come in and just lay out every single program and giving some room for the body to dream up new ministries, a couple things have happened. One is this. The leadership doesn't stagnate the creativity and passion of the body. If the only things that are dreamt up for our church to do come from the brains and minds and hearts and passions and preferences of a couple of key people, that actually stagnates the creativity and passion of the body of Christ. It does a second thing. It actually causes atrophy. Anyone had an arm in a cast before for any length of time? What happens to the arm? Right? little raisin arm. Right? And it just turns into nothing. You know what happens if the church leadership and a few paid, qualified, super spiritual Christians do all the work? The rest of the body is like, I can barely clap, but I'm going to clap for you. Yay, keep it up. Atrophy. And they go, I have no idea why I can't discern good and evil. I have no idea why I don't walk in faith. I have no idea why I can't use my spiritual gifts. It's because you've just been sitting in a cast this whole time, and that may be the leadership's fault for not expecting anything from the body of Christ. The other thing it does is that participation and ownership is heightened. And God receives the glory as the whole community is contributing to the assignment rather than a few superstars. So that's the reason behind it. In short, I would say this, the body is being built up and disciples are made and they're forced into the hard work of observing all that Jesus commanded. Now, we've chosen to represent this with something visual called a play button. The play button is kind of this simple visual representation of sort of the, the purpose and path of a disciple. It's really common and it's really regular. There's nothing flashy about a play button. You will see them all over the place if you look for them. Most of you have phones and things in your car that have this little triangle on it. But here's what's cool about it. Pressing that button requires faith. And when you press that button, something kind of magical goes on. Most of us don't understand all the details of how it works. But somehow, when I push this button, 
I begin to hear music that I really enjoy, and that actually brightens my day. When I push this button, I begin to receive uh, uh, entertainment or instruction on, on how to, to be a better husband. When I push that button, things happen. The background color is green to represent this. We're to go. Green means go, right? My kids know that. So the play button says a lot for us. We believe that a maturing disciple is growing and passionately involved in these three areas. A loving relationship with God, committed and loving relationships with the family of God, and serving and sharing with people. Now here are the three words that you hear a lot around our church. Worship and community and share. And they're chosen very carefully to take all the complexities of the Bible, all the things the Bible speaks about, all the books and books and books I have on my bookshelf that write about the church. What are some of the very key things that must go on? In the play button with worship, community, and share, you find the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And you find the Great Commandment, which is love God in worship, love one another in community, love those outside the church by sharing with them. Rob and the team designed the worship set this week to do this. The first three songs that we just sang, the first one had a worship component to it, the second one had a community aspect to it, the third one called Missions Flame was all about sharing the gospel. After the sermon, we're going to do three more songs, and you can guess the first one's going to deal with worship. The second one's going to deal with community. The third one's going to deal with share. This is something that as a worship team, we talk about a lot. Are we mixing in different components of what God's called us to be as a church? Now, what you'll notice is this. Church growth, and by church growth, what I mean is this. Growing members who already exist and adding new people to our church is not fast, and it's not very efficient. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. You know why? Because it's relational. Relationships aren't fast and efficient. We live in a valley that's fast and efficient. I want clear metrics. I want a timeline. I want to meet the timeline. And I want to see a finished result. Don't become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ if that's your driving passion. Because it will frustrate you to no end. You try to impose that in your marriage or in your friendships... You'll drive people crazy. Relationships aren't that way. We have some exciting days ahead as a church. Um, and I'm getting ahead of myself. <clears throat> there are so many things going on. I, I try to use these as illustrations. I like to use illustrations from our own church experience um, just to kind of say some of the things that God's doing on. But I couldn't possibly begin to tell you all the great things going on. I hope some of that happens at community uh, group lunch today at, at the welcome lunch that, that happens after second service. Um, but there is benevolence going on. There is money given in this church that is, that is given and designated specifically to just meet tangible needs of people in this body. There's a lot of benevolence going on. Some of it's organized and through the church. Some of it's just not organized and not through the church. It's just going on. There are people who are growing in Christ, and the Word of God is going out into their hearts. They're mulling on it. The Holy Spirit's watering it and doing crazy things, and lives are being changed and priorities are being rearranged in this church all the time. There are people who are giving themselves to Christ for the very first time, receiving the gift of faith. There are people who are being baptized. There are people who are being thought of and prayed for that we don't even know the names of yet. 
And yet with all the great things going on, here's what we have a sense. When I read the New Testament and when you guys read the New Testament, I know that you think this question sometimes. God, is this all there is? Are we getting it all right? Here's the easy answer. No. There's growth available for us. Seven years ago, uh, we had our very first public service in 2006. A handful in this room were probably at that service. Most of you weren't. Since that time, God has grown this church and been faithful to do some things in this church that has been so exciting and exceeded many of our expectations and, other, and re- re- readjusted other of our, of our expectations. What the leadership has a sense of right now is this. We've begun what we anticipate to be about a year-long process as a leadership team to begin saying this, God, where do you want us heading next? What do you want us to continue to grow into? He's brought us up a hill, and we're on sort of a plateau, and we can look around at all the great things God's done and is doing currently right here today, but we also say, God, where do you want to take us next? And so your elders and pastors are on a project right now that we deem as really, really important. One of the things we're doing is we're just meeting with some other churches, some of our friends, and just saying, hey, some of those core things that that a church must be doing, how are you guys doing that? We don't know exactly where this is going to lead or, or take us as a church, but we're wanting to seek God with that. And today, I want to solicit your help in that. One of the things we see in the New Testament is not just that, that the church leaders went off at a conference and came back and said, thus saith the Lord. And then everyone goes, okay, we'll get on board with that. A lot of times what we see in Scripture is this. It seemed good to them, the church congregation, and to us, the church elders. And so we move forward with this. And so in this process probably in different levels and in different ways, we're going to really seek to involve the body in this. We are not going to a congregational vote so that you can vote each week on what I'm going to preach on next week. We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament, and we're not heading that way. But we do see involvement from the body at large. One of the ways you can start today is to begin to pray for us and, um, and join us with that. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song, but in just a couple of moments, we're going to get to hear about, um, about a new missionary uh, that's really not so new. We've been supporting them for a little while, um, but, but, but you're going to get to, to kind of see some of the expanding reach of, of Neighborhood Bible Church and kind of where we're going with that. Band, let me invite you to come on up. Uh, each week I have this in mind, that, that, that I'm going to give you some tangible things. Ready, set, action. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be laid out this way. It's going to be laid out um, with what everyone can do. Everyone can show up and participate. There is a way for you to be involved in what's going on in this church today. I just gave a call to everyone present to join with us in praying for God, where do you want to take this church? If you heard that as just kind of a little cliche pastor thing that pastors say, then you missed the mark on that. That's what I mean by participating. Our dependence on prayer and on the Holy Spirit has been a hallmark of this church since before it opened uh, for its very first service. That's something everyone can do. Many of you can grow in the Great Commission, the Great Assignment, and the Great Love. 
This happens by doing it, by putting it into practice. That means that some of you here may need to actually evaluate your current ministry investment here at NBC and say, God, am I really doing what you've wired me uh, most to do? Some of you might say, I don't have a ministry uh, um, position. I don't do anything around here. Well, then that's probably the call to say, what should you be doing? How can you join in with, with what we're doing here at the church? So everyone can, many can, and here's what I would say a few can. A few of you can visioneer new ministries that would involve others in our body to use their gifts. Some of the best things we're doing as a church came from people who were sitting out on a Sunday morning, looking back at the pastor, had no ministry title or position. They were a faithful Christian, and they had linked arms with other faithful Christians, and they felt empowered to say, I'm pretty sure he's saying that I can raise my hand and say, I'm passionate about this. I'm willing to start doing this. I'm willing to build a team. Can we do this? And so they met with me, and off we go. There are ministries, I believe, that are going to rise up in this next year that don't exist yet because you haven't dreamt them up yet and God hasn't, God hasn't stirred you enough yet to, to, to move you in that direction. But feel empowered to do so. Let me pray. God, would you keep us on track as a church? I thank you that as we have this conversation, we don't, we don't need to worry about a vengeful God who's going to smack our hands if we get out of line. You will lovingly allow ministries to die. You will lovingly move on people who are not the right fit, who are not the right direction. But God, we don't want to be guilty of turning inward, of having our own agenda. Collectively this morning, God, we say this, not our will, but yours be done.